Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 7th, 2022. Um, over the years, we've done a few shows about Elizabethan England. We did a show a couple of years ago. I really enjoyed that with Lawrence Burgreen on the relationship between Francis Drake and Elizabeth I. He has a lovely book out, In Search of a Kingdom. Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. Um, also did an interesting uh, conversation with Alan Judd, the author um, of a a Fine Madness, um, a book about uh, Christopher Marlowe, um, which uh, we did a couple of uh, months ago. Uh, Judd speculates on how Marlowe was killed. Uh, Drake, of course, um, uh, Elizabeth I and uh, Christopher Marlowe were all great figures of the Elizabethan age, but the best known, the most um, ubiquitous figure, I guess, in Elizabethan England is, of course, William Church—not uh, William Churchill, William <laughs> Shakespeare, the great English playwright. And I think it's appropriate we haven't done a show on uh, Shakespeare, so we should do. Although this book that we are talking about, in Shakespeare's Shadow, a rogue scholar's quest to reveal the true sources behind the world's greatest plays, is not really a book about. Shakespeare. It's a book about somebody else. And um, our guest today, Michael Blanding, the author of in, in, in Shakespeare's Shadow, perhaps can introduce the main character in Shakespeare's Shadow, the man who was, at least according to Michael, quite literally in Shakespeare's Shadow. So, Michael, <laughs> who's the star of Shakespeare's Shadow? <laughs> well, there's actually two stars of my book. One is the uh, scholar in the title. He's a man by the name of Dennis McCarthy, and he's sort of an unconventional scholar who has done all of this research into uh, Shakespeare and how Shakespeare wrote his plays. And he's a little different than some of the theories that you may have heard about someone else sort of secretly writing the, the plays under a pseudonym and, you know, the Earl of Oxford or Sir Francis Bacon or, or someone like that. He does believe that Shakespeare wrote the plays, but he also believes that he based many of these plays on earlier, uh, earlier plays written by uh, another writer by the name of Sir Thomas North. Yeah, and Thomas, Moore, Th Thomas North is so literally unknown although he's important in some ways that there isn't even a photograph of him on his wikipedia page so no. uh, dennis mccarthy uh in a league i think um uh with um with michael has imagined what uh north looks like or looked like very much of an elizabethan gentleman so as you say uh the two heroes of the book are dennis mccarthy uh, and Thomas North, they couldn't be more different people, could they? <laughs> That's absolutely right. Dennis is a, um, he was a college dropout. He worked for a number of years as a writer looking into the uh, subject of biogeography and, and writing about uh, evolution and how plant and animal species move around the world. And it was actually this that led him to Shakespeare about uh, 15 uh, years ago. 
uh, he started looking at how uh, stories also move around the world and, and uh, particularly how Hamlet sort of moved from being this Viking legend to being, you know, the greatest work in, in, in its language. And uh, he determined that, uh, as many scholars believe, there was an earlier version of Hamlet that someone else wrote before uh, Shakespeare. And in searching for who was the author of this earlier Hamlet, this or Hamlet, as people call it, uh, he found all these clues pointing to Sir Thomas North. And that's what led him uh, to this, uh, this revelation. That this Let, let's talk a little bit about... Um about Dennis McCarthy, college dropout, um, spent a lot of time on the internet. To what extent does he fall into that category of autodidact who became obsessed with something and burrowed away on the internet and thinks that he has <laughs> found the truth about maybe not the nature of existence, but at least about Sh Shakespeare, which is pretty close? Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, he's been called by by someone called him this the Steve Jobs of the Shakespeare community. I mean, he's definitely a self-taught scholar. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, just that Steve Jobs was also sort of self-taught and and you know became this brilliant uh, uh, business leader. But um, you know, so he obviously comes with that that baggage of not being traditionally trained in in Shakespeare studies. But it sort of also allowed him to to sort of look at it from a new point of view. And in particular, he has done all of this really amazing work using computer software, using plagiarism software to analyze Shakespeare's plays and compare it to the works of this other writer, Sir Thomas North. Right, and you've, uh, right. or he, I don't know whether it's you or he, or in, in collaboration, you're doing all these comparative linguistic analyses of North's, um, was it his, is it his translation? Yeah, um, that's right. So, so North is... was not completely unknown North, um, North. So tell me a little bit about North, um, Michael. Yeah. What is he best remembered for? So Thomas North is best known as the author or the translator, rather, of this book, Plutarch's Lives. And it's a group of Greek and Roman biographies. And it's universally acknowledged that this is the source for Shakespeare's Roman plays. Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, um, Coriolanus. They all come from from Norse translation of Plutarch. So, so also, to what extent? Yeah. It's almost as if um, McCarthy is doing this plagiaristic uh, this this plagiaristic uh, research into seeing whether or not Shakespeare cheated. Is the suggestion <laughs> that he he literally just pickpocketed pickpocketed um, Norse translation of Plutarch? Or is he suggesting that they were actually somehow in league, uh, Shakespeare and North? Yeah, it's a little complicated, but uh, North didn't only write Plutarch's Lives. He also wrote several other translations. And there are all these books of sort of courtly wisdom that uh, McCarthy has found connections to all of these books in Shakespeare's plays. And not just like a line here or there, but thousands of lines and whole passages that express similar ideas, have similar characters. So either Shakespeare was just obsessed with North and, you know, had his books open in front of him as he was writing his plays and, and was always using him as a source, or McCarthy's right that Thomas North actually wrote early versions of these plays. As, as scholars know, there were early versions of these plays. Well, why would he and, do that, North? Why wouldn't he just write the, the plays and, and, and put himself as the author? 
Well, North was 30 years older than Shakespeare, and, and there's some evidence actually that he was paid by this nobleman by named the Earl of Leicester, who is sort of Queen Elizabeth's great, uh, uh, great favorite, and some, some say her lover. Um, but he was actually, he, so he had a theater troupe that would put on plays at court. And these were plays that were not on the public stage. They were not published. And as a gentleman, North wouldn't really, you know, if he did indeed write these plays, he wouldn't have necessarily looked for credit for them. He was sort of writing them for this, this other nobleman. And then when the Earl of Leicester died uh, in 1588, uh, these plays sort of would have reverted back to North. And at that point, he could have sold them to Shakespeare or he could have collaborated with Shakespeare. It sounds a, a little conspiratorial, a little paranoid. What about the, the politics well, of all this? This is, this is just it, Andrew. It's actually not a conspiracy. And, and scholars today actually are starting to uncover all kinds of evidence that the Elizabethan stage was much more collaborative than we realize and that authors were always sort of taking each other's work and rewriting it and putting their name on it. And, and you know, they didn't have this sort of idea of plagiarism that we have today that somebody owns the work and, you know, it's, it's copyrighted. And so um, it actually sort of fits a lot more with the current scholarship and the current idea of how these plays were made. And I think also explains a lot of the uh, mysteries about the plays and how Shakespeare could have known about, you know, travels in Italy or these other aspects. that have So you, 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 you described, or you said that McCarthy is described as the Steve Jobs of Shakespeare's mm. scholarship. It sounds to me like Shakespeare is being described as the Bob Dylan of playwright in the sense that he, he simply borrowed other people's words and reshaped them for his own purposes. This isn't that surprising. I mean, is it? Well, well, that's just the thing is, you know, you look at work today, you look at the movies that, that we see today, or you look at the uh, television shows we see today, and they're, they're all the result of collaboration. It's not like, you know, one person is responsible for them. You have a director, producer, you know, writers. And so, you know, if McCarthy's right about this theory, it sort of puts Shakespeare more of into a producer role. And he may have actually had a lot to do with rewriting these earlier courtly works and adapting them for the public stage and making them the masterpieces that we're still reading 400 years later. But he just wasn't the originator of these plays. And, and that's what's really uh, uh, surprising and, and, and somewhat controversial about McCarthy's ideas and, and what's uh, caused him to be, you know, have such a hard time getting traction from uh, but, the academic but, but world. In, in my mind, Shakespeare still did the hard thing. I mean, it's one thing to sure. take some of the language from Plutarch uh, on some of the, the characters from, 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 from antiquity. It's quite another to reshape them in a way to make these great plays, isn't it? Mm. Uh, yes and no, because, you know, in some of these cases where McCarthy has looked at the language that Shakespeare was lifting, uh, they are some of Shakespeare's greatest soliloquies. You know, for example, the... Uh, uh, life is but a walking shadow was a line from from Thomas North. The a lot of the to be or not to be soliloquy actually comes from a passage in Norris Dial of Princes. And so, uh, you know, you have to give some credit to North as the originator, not only of some of these uh, plots, but also some of these ideas and the language and the soliloquies. But I also completely agree with you that uh, you know, it, it takes uh, somebody with the ability to sort of adapt it and make it something that the 
you know, the average, uh, the groundlings at, at the stage are going to sit there for three hours and, and uh, you know, uh, enjoy it in, in the public theater. And I think that that is probably Shakespeare's contribution. And, and uh, you which know, is, which is, uh, still makes him, in my view, at least the, the real author. What about North's, hmm. um, what about North's own story? I know that McCarthy hmm. has some theories about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and the actual life of, of, of North. How is that all connected? Yeah, this is really fascinating. There was a murder that took place in 1551, uh, where it was sort of like the murder of the century. This woman rose up and she killed her own husband with the help of her lover. And it was this huge scandal. And it became this play called Arden of Faversham which some people actually believe was one of Shakespeare's first plays. The Oxford Shakespeare actually attributes it to Shakespeare now. And uh, the woman at the root of that murder, Alice Arden, was actually Thomas North's half-sister, and he would have known everyone involved. And uh, this, um, this play, Arden of Faversham, is actually seen in many ways as the uh, kind of source for the characters of, of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and and. Macbeth and, and that Alice Arden actually was sort of an early version of Lady Macbeth that, uh, you know, was was reused years later in, in this play. And so, uh, you know, certain things like that in Norse biography really fit in uncanny ways to also explain how he might be the author of, of some of these original plays. So what's your and McCarthy's theory on how much Shakespeare and North actually formally collaborated? Did they know one another? Were they close? Well, there's, it's an open question, but there is a pamphlet which uh, is sort of very, uh, very well known uh, that gave Shakespeare the nickname the, of the upstart crow. And it's this uh, pamphlet called Green's Groat's Wort of Wit. And it accuses Shakespeare of being this upstart crow that beautifies himself with the feathers of others. And some other people have pointed to this to as evidence that Shakespeare was a plagiarist, or at least was using other people's works and, and making them into his own. And uh, if you read further in that pamphlet, though, there is this description of this country actor who meets this gentleman scholar, and they sort of, uh, you know, come into an agreement together to actually uh, have the gentleman scholar write these plays that then this actor will will adapt. And, and if McCarthy is right, then that could be explaining and could be describing the meeting of North and Shakespeare and actually show that they they knew each other and that they had something to do together in, in producing these plays. One of the things that confuses me, I, I've been mm. looking at some videos online mm. from uh, McCarthy and, and there are lots of them. He's certainly a, a smart, <laughs> articulate guy. And yeah. Although sometimes he crumbs across as somebody who's a bit of a, a conspiracy theorist, but this idea that Thomas North wrote Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare didn't have a play called Henry VIII, did he? Oh, yes, he did. It was actually seen as one of Shakespeare's last plays. And um, there's always been some question about uh, how it was written. People think that he collaborated with it with John Fletcher or someone else. And uh, Dennis actually discovered Thomas North's handwritten uh, travel diary, this trip he took to England, to Italy, that was never published, that, you know, uh, Shakespeare or anyone else never would have been able to get their hands on it. And there are all of these details and lines and and uh, aspects, scenes of, of the journal and Thomas North's travels that actually figure into Henry VIII and uh, Shakespeare's uh, play, The Winter's Tale. Both of those plays seem related to this journal that Thomas North was keeping uh, this trip he took to Italy. 
of course, any play about Henry VIII and Elizabethan England would have been deeply political. Um, mm. It was an intensely political time. Yeah. Given the history of the church, given mm-hmm. Mary's uh, Elizabeth's older sister and Elizabeth's own history. Um, McCarthy co-authored a book called Thomas North's 1555 Travel Journey um, that's supposed to be about a trip to Rome with Queen Mary's delegation. What were North's politics when it came to the church? May have that been a reason Mm. why he had to keep his head down when it came to playwriting? Yeah, well, it was one of the most fascinating parts of of my research and writing, I really went deep into Elizabethan history and learned a lot about the politics of the time. And it was such a dangerous time that kept kind of going back and forth between Catholic and Protestant. If you were on the wrong side at the wrong time, you know, you could get your head chopped off. And uh, North was actually someone who was very well adept at sort of maneuvering these kind of shifting alliances. And when Queen Mary was on the throne, he served as the secretary to this this uh, Catholic delegation that that did go to Rome. And this is what he kept this journal uh, chronicling. And um, it's for that reason that uh, Dennis believes that uh, he based his play, The Winter's Tale, or his early version of The Winter's Tale, was this sort of analogy, this sort of allegory for Queen Mary and, and her taking the throne. And uh, other people have actually uh, looked at the, looked at it, the Winter's Tale in this way, as well. But it sort of never made sense because, uh, as I said, this was one of Shakespeare's last plays. It was in 1610. It was during the reign of, of King James, and so, uh, you know, scholars have not ever really been able to understand why there's all these references that seem so heavily to reference Queen Mary and this reign that happened, you know, more than 50 years earlier. And so this could explain that. Um, could provide an explanation for that, that North was writing this play uh, about Queen Mary in this kind of uh, allegorical form during this delegation that he took to Rome. And then 50 years later, uh, you know, Shakespeare took this play and reworked it and and published it as The Winter's Tale. So it's this kind of, these kind of um, questions that are really interesting to examine and, and why it actually matters who who wrote these plays because they can help us better understand them and solve some of these longstanding mysteries. Michael, people will be familiar. This is your, your third book. Um, came out last year. It's just out in paperback. Your first book was The Map Thief. Second book was The Coke Machine. So you're quite an accomplished author. Given the, collabor- the, the collaborative nature of the foundations of your argument, and given how much you depend on McCarthy, um, shouldn't your book have been by Michael Blanding and um, and McCarthy? Isn't there something <laughs> collaborative about your book? I mean, I don't disagree that all books, or not all books, but many books are indeed collaborative, but it sounds to me like sure. you're really depending on McCarthy. When does McCarthy end and Blinding begin in Shakespeare's shadow. Well, I, I really wrote this book as a journalist. You know, as you see from my past books, my background is as an investigative journalist. And I went to McCarthy early on after he started telling me about his theories. I first wrote a, an article for the New York Times that was on the front page of the New York Times. And then after that article came out, I approached him and I said, look, I know you want to get your theories out there. I know you've been having trouble getting a book published about them uh, in in academia. 
why don't I write the book as an investigative reporter? I'll, you know, we can travel together. I'll look into the theories. I'll keep my own uh, point of view and I'll, I'll, you know, look at it in an unbiased way. And, and, you know, I talked to other scholars and, and, you know, considered alternatives. I, I don't just sort of parrot McCarthy's ideas, but it really allowed, uh, me as a journalist to sort of investigate them. And, and along the way, I started doing some of my own research in the archives and started finding things that Dennis didn't even know about that uh, actually supported his theories, much to my surprise. And Is so Dennis was, happy with the book? Do, does he feel perhaps that you stole his thunder? No, I don't think so. And in, and in fact, as time has gone on, we've actually started working more closely together. And since the book came out, uh, I've actually been continuing to do research. You know, it's very strange for me as a journalist. Usually I do a project, I move on, I do something else. And this one has just captured me in a way that other projects haven't. And I've continued to do research and I've actually been collaborating much more closely with, with Dennis uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, look into other aspects of this and, and hopefully find more evidence to support it. So I've sort of crossed that line from, you know, I wrote the book completely at arm's length as a journalist and I, I maintained my skepticism up to the end, but since it's come out, I've really started to, uh, to cross that line and actually become more of a partner with Dennis in, in looking into this theory and in, and in disseminating this theory. And, and it's sort of a, a uh, different, but also kind of exciting role for me to be in. Michael, how does, this theory um, of North um, as the as the the sort of the inspiration or the foundation mm. of Shakespeare's plays, how does it compare to the other conspiracy theories of Shakespeare? People claiming other authors. Some people even claim that Shakespeare never really existed. Mm. Um, obviously, you believe it's more compelling, but are there other arguments, other theories that could also make sense in your mind? Yeah, I've looked into some of these other theories and, you know, that it was the Earl of Oxford or Sir Francis Bacon or someone like that and, you know, writing under a pseudonym. And, you know, what what makes them difficult for me to swallow is they always do, they literally depend on some kind of conspiracy that some people knew who the true author was and some people didn't and they went to great lengths to hide that. And what I found compelling about this theory is that it's a really interesting sort of middle ground between orthodox Shakespeare wrote all the plays and, you know, anti Stratfordian, someone else wrote the plays. It sort of allows for this understanding that there were earlier versions of some of these plays. And it explains, you know, a lot of these mysteries about how Shakespeare could have known about Italy or, you know, use very specific language about fighting in war or these complex legal terms that, that North would have known about from his experience. But at the same time, there's no conspiracy because it was a very well-established, uh, practice mm -hmm. in the Elizabethan stage to take these earlier plays, rewrite them and put your name on it very legitimately. And uh, so it's sort of, you know, a way to kind of have your cake and eat it too, that it sort of explains some of these mysteries, but it doesn't depend on one of these wild conspiracies. And uh, for that reason, I think that it's something that uh, scholars should seriously consider. And I, and I really uh, hope that they do. Michael, how if your theory is true, how should this make us rethink Shakespeare himself. He still was a genius, right? I mean, if, if what you're saying is true, he still I was a remarkable playwright and thinker and user of language. I, th I think that's true. And, and I think that there's room in this theory for the genius of Thomas North and the genius of Shakespeare. You know, uh, Dennis 
likes to use this this analogy that uh, you know it's like uh, Peter Jackson adapting uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or something like that. It doesn't take anything away from the brilliance of Tolkien in writing the Lord of Ring the Rings, but you know Peter Jackson was able to condense these you know massive books into three movies that were you know incredibly crowd pleasing and uh, you know one of them won an Oscar and and you know it's a different kind of genius, but uh, they're both uh, you know completely. Uh, masters of of their form, and and it may be something like that that Shakespeare, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, is unclear. You know, took these earlier plays by North and really converted them into the masterpieces that you know, as, as I say, we're still reading four hundred years later. Why do you think people haven't found this out, especially at the time? Mm. You'd have thought that the lives of Plutarch were quite well known. North wasn't mm -hmm. well known. The plays of Shakespeare were well known. Why is Dennis McCarthy the first guy to have figured this out? Yeah, I asked him the same question because I was initially skeptical when I first met him and, and uh, you know, I had the, the same doubts about his theory and said, oh, come on, it can't be some guy in a computer in New Hampshire that, you know, discovers this when all these, you know, generations of scholars haven't. And, um, you know, for starters, there were there were scholars in the 19th century that actually uh, did talk about North and said that Shakespeare used him in a way that he didn't use any other source. He was actually taking whole passages and converting them into his plays in a way that he wasn't with 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 others. So he wasn't completely unknown, but but he did sort of fall out in the in the 20th century. And I think McCarthy's real, um, uh, you know, what he brought to this research were these new techniques uh, using these massive computer uh, online databases. Uh, using this plagiarism software to compare. Yeah, them. and he, you can see some of it you online. Know. It's pretty just, interesting, actually. Yeah, you just couldn't do that without the kind of computing power that we have now. And, you know, because uh, so many of the plays from the Elizabethan era were lost, I mean, 90% of the plays were never published and have been lost as, as manuscripts. We don't have any of Shakespeare's manuscripts either. And, and so we're really dependent on the physical documents that we have from the time. And so using this computer software is another new tool and new technique that's really just starting to catch on in academia and allows us to, to discover things that are that are hidden or that are lost and, and uh, reveal them again in, in these new ways. It's funny, this software is designed mm -hmm. to catch a certain kind of plagiarism. You're suggesting right. that it's not plagiarism, it's collaboration. Right. What would you say to a student who quote unquote <laughs> borrows somebody else's essay or book right. for their own work and said, well, um, uh, Michael Blanding in Shakespeare's Shadow <laughs> said, uh, Shakespeare did it, why can't I? Right, right, even Shakespeare did it, the greatest writer ever to live. Yeah, when, when my New York Times story came out, uh, the, because plagiarism, you know, was right in the headline of the story, there were a lot of takes like that, a lot of uh, people on social media, you know, snickering about Shakespeare being a plagiarist and saying, hey, if he can do it, you know, why can't I? Um, you know, obviously, as I said before, the, the, you know, the whole concept of plagiarism didn't really exist in the same way back back then. Uh, you know, there was a lot more kind of borrowing of, of stories and language. And, and as you've pointed out, you know, Shakespeare may have sort of transmuted it in a way that really made it. Uh, you Is know, there a bit of a romanticism there on your part, Michael, suggesting mm -hmm. that maybe we're a little too sensitive about plagiarism and things were better in the Elizabethan time <laughs> when writers borrowed freely? liberally from one another and we didn't yeah, all get to our tides about having our own authentic language 
Well, you know, as I said, uh, at least at least one person wasn't very happy about Shakespeare doing this because they did call him the upstart crow and they they seemed to, you know, be a little bit upset that he was taking other people's words. So I don't know if uh, everyone was completely happy with it back in the day, but, uh, you know, it was it was a different time back then. And it's hard for us now to kind of, you know, put our own uh, values back on that time and, and completely understand how it worked. What does it tell us about rethinking the English Renaissance. Um, mm. Clearly still remains a Renaissance. No one's denying the plays themselves. Should we, oh, right. if, if, if your book is right, um, and, and Shakespeare borrowed freely, liberally from other writers, particularly Thomas North, mm-hmm. should that get us to rethink not just Elizabethan England, but the whole idea of an English Renaissance? Does that deepen the Renaissance? Does it challenge it? I think it actually makes it, to me, uh, a lot richer and more compelling that you have this environment that was, you know, really unique at the time. It was, you know, so many factors came together to create this golden age of the stage, you know, in the uh, 1580s, 1590s. And I think one of those factors was just having all of these brilliant minds in the same place and that they were uh, borrowing from each other, they were taking each other's words, they were refashioning, they were reworking, and maybe even, you know, sitting right at the same table together and, and writing together. And, you know, it's really been a function of, um, it was actually in the 18th century, that Shakespeare was sort of held up as the number one only genius of the era. And it actually had to do with, um, you know, the politics of, of the 18th century, and there was a war against France, and they needed to sort of hold up, you know, Shakespeare as this, as this, you know, great writer. And I think it really does a disservice to our understanding of the time that it's actually more exciting to me to think about, you know, not just the sort of genius who sort of, you know, was uh, having, you know, uh, words sort of, you know, come out of his head and drip onto the page, but uh, this this real dynamic environment where the, the politics and, and the creative energy of the time was really leading. So to what was it, uh, Michael, about this world that was able to generate mm-hmm. such remarkable characters? Sir Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, of, of course, who probably was the most remarkable of all, particularly yeah. as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, Christopher Marlowe, and then uh, perhaps Thomas North too. Mm-hmm. Was, was there something in the water back then that turned them all into explorers, politicians, well, it kings, was an queens, playwrights, yeah. poets? It was an amazing time because, um, and I go into the, a little bit into this in my book, but uh, there was this huge upheaval in society when Henry VIII broke with the church. He not only, uh, you know, broke with Rome and became Protestant, but he also destroyed all of the monasteries of the time. And so you had this huge transfer of wealth all of a sudden to this new generation of really, uh, uh, you know, hungry uh uh, new uh, new blood that was coming up and eager to make their their mark, and at the same time you had all of these influences from Italy with the the Renaissance and uh, you know the thinkers from from Florence and Rome that was sort of filtering its way gradually up into Rome, and so you had you know this this huge new wealth, this huge new social mobility with all of these new ideas, and I think that combination really led to this uh, this exciting explosion that that uh, you know created the epitome of uh, of drama and, and uh, storytelling on, on the English stage. It's almost like the American Revolution, Michael, isn't it? Maybe that's why <laughs> Americans love Shakespeare so much. It's a wonderful thesis, beautifully written mm-hmm. by uh, 
Michael Blanding, although he borrows liberally from <laughs> Dennis McCarthy, even if Dennis McCarthy is not his co-author, he's his, the spirit behind in Shakespeare's <laughs> shadow, the shadow of the book. But uh, Michael has done a very good job. It's just out in paperback. It's well worth reading, particularly if you have any interest in Shakespeare or Elizabethan England. Congratulations, Michael, on the book. Uh, what else should people be reading? Um, Dennis McCarthy doesn't have a book out, right? Otherwise, we should be recommending <laughs> well, that. He does have that book, uh, the 1555 Travel Journal. Yeah, but it's not really Dennis's book. A deep dive into, uh, uh, yeah. into Thomas North. And, and, is is uh, Dennis going to do a book on all this? I hope so. He's been, he's been working on one. And, and you know, as I say, he's tried to get it published. He doesn't have serious academic credentials. And so he's had a hard time getting it published. But it, but he may even just self-publish it at this point and just to get the words out there. Well, that would be in, in the spirit of things. And certainly <laughs> right. um, you can go on a, for our audience. If you're interested in Dennis McCarthy, there's lots of um, videos of him. He's a very articulate, passionate guy. Right. He certainly he's certainly believes in it very So you could... It's not hard to track down. So what other books um, um, should people be reading uh, in addition, Michael, to your new book? Yeah, I'm, I'm reading this fantastic new book right now. It's called The Vortex, and it's by uh, a, two writers, Scott McCartney. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Scott, Scott Carney and Jason um, Mickley. Yeah, and they've both been on talking about the book. It's a very oh, trusty book. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, you know, then, then you know it's this... Uh, great story about this storm that that hit uh bangladesh you know which was east pakistan at the time and just led to all these upheavals and they write it like it's a movie script i mean just so gripping the way they follow these different characters as they sort of you know deal yeah, it's with a very people. tragic book millions of deaths as a consequence oh, and of this combination so... of political incompetence and environmental catastrophe it's an important book yeah and it's so relevant now if you look at it and you think about what's going on in ukraine or you think about climate change and so even though it happened 50 years ago it feels just so so relevant to what we're we're dealing with now and finally michael blanding the author of in shakespeare's shadow who who rules the world it's it's not william shakespeare it might be dennis <laughs> mccarthy right no it's not it's certainly not uh, not dennis mccarthy either i don't i don't know that anyone's ruling the world right now i think that's what makes it so uh such a confusing and frustrating time right now. I don't think that Biden is control in control of, of the world. He seems to be a victim of, of circumstances with the pandemic and the economy. And, you know, Vladimir Putin's certainly not ruling the world. I think that it's really, uh, it's a really a chaotic time. We need, uh, you know, a little bit more leadership all around. 